We're going to look this morning at a, a chapter from 1 Peter chapter 2, and we're going to look at this theme of living the good life, and hopefully the first slide will come up behind me. We're going to look at living the good life, and what does that mean? I once went to a carpet right, those joys of having to buy carpets, which these days basically seem, what shade of beige would you like, you know, that sort of thing. And uh, I went to carpet right a couple of years ago to actually buy some bathroom flooring. And I got there and uh, said to the chap, yeah, I like this. And I chose about five samples. And he said to me, that's no problem, sir, I'll just take some details. And then he said, and that's £100 deposit, please. I was like, £100 just to take a few bits of sample? And he went, yes, I'm, I'm sorry, sir, it's a company pos- policy, it's £20 per sample. I said, oh, all right then. He said, don't worry, you'll get it back if you, pr- if you return it. I said, well, I presume so, that's the idea of a deposit, but yeah, that's fine, whatever. So I said, but... but I've had stuff from Carpet Right before. I don't ever remember paying £20 for a little bit of sample, you know. And he said, yeah, well, the company policies changed because there was an ex-carpet fitter who went to around 17 Carpet Right stores in the UK and took a sample, the same sample of carpet, from each of those stores, laid it in his lounge, took a photo of it, and sent a, sent a photo of it off to head office with a thank you card thanking them for, for um, basically carpeting his whole lounge for free. So it's going to cost £20 a sample. I said, fair enough, and paid up. And when you come to this passage we're going to read in a minute, you'll see that it's a bit like a carpet right experience. I'm not going to charge you £20 for every point, you'll be glad to hear. But you'll see that in many ways there's just lots of different points that are made in this passage. And we're going to try and unpack it. And I might in some ways not give full credit to the whole passage, but I will try and pick out some samples from it. And hopefully we'll understand a little bit of what it is to live differently. So let's have a look. I'd like us to read together. So are you all up for that? That's four of us, okay. (laughs) So let's try and read together. Uh, If you can see it, read it. If you can't, listen and hopefully you'll get it. Uh, This is Peter writing and he says this together. Dear friends, I urge you as foreigners and exiles to abstain from sinful desires which wage war against your soul. Live such good lives among the pagans that though they accuse you of doing wrong, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day he visits us. Submit yourselves for the Lord's sake to every human authority, whether to the emperor as the supreme authority, or to governors who are sent by him to punish those who do wrong and to commend those who do right. For it is God's will that by doing good you should silence the ignorant talk of foolish people. Live as free people, But do not use your freedom as a cover-up for evil. Live as God's slaves. Show proper respect to everyone. Love the family of believers. Fear God. Honour the emperor. Slaves, in reverent fear of God, submit yourselves to your masters, not only to those who are good and considerate, but also to those who are harsh. For it is commendable if someone bears up under the pain of unjust suffering because they are conscious of God. But how is it to your credit if you receive a beating for doing wrong and endure it? But if you suffer for doing good and you endure it, this is commendable before God. To this you were called because Christ suffered for you, leaving you an example that you should follow in his steps. He committed no sin, and no deceit was found in his mouth. When they hurled insults at him, 
he did not retaliate. When he suffered, he made no threats. Instead, he entrusted himself to him who judges justly. He himself bore our sins in his body on the cross so that we might die to sins and live for righteousness. By his wounds you have been healed, for you were like sheep going astray, but now you have returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. Brilliant. Well read, everybody. So far in this little uh, book that Peter writes, he's already made clear that the significant change is that we are now in Christ. So if you're here this morning and you're a believer in Christ, you've made that commitment, you've said, yes, Lord, I want you in my life, then the position that you're in changes. So you change from being a people who were once in darkness, Scripture uses a lot of illustrations like that, and away from God to now people who are in God, and uh, as Peter puts it, you're a royal, pe- a holy people rather, and a royal priesthood. A holy people and a royal priesthood. But you think about it, it's pretty amazing that our change of status comes not because of what we've done, but purely because of what Jesus has done, and so we find ourselves as holy people and a royal priesthood. And verse 12 is key. He writes this, Live therefore such good lives amongst the pagans, that though they accuse you of doing wrong, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day he visits us. So the challenge, and the challenge I want to bring to us this morning through this passage, is that we're called to live differently. Our lifestyle should reflect that new position, that we are holy people, that we are a royal priesthood. People should see that we are different. And so he writes, dear friends, I urge you as aliens and strangers in the world to abstain from sinful desires. We're seen as aliens and strangers in the world. And thinking on that uh, a little bit, the trouble is we don't really look like this, do we? Okay? Wouldn't it be great if you became a Christian, you suddenly turned into some sort of different creature altogether, so you were easily distinguishable. Some of you may have seen that next to you in bed this morning when you woke up, I don't know. Think about that. Um, But the trouble is that actually we don't look like this, do we? We look more like this. And the challenge is that as believers even, we do just blend into the crowd. And actually, wouldn't it be great if you could just find the little Christian, a bit like a where's Wally sort of thing, you could hunt out the Christian and find the believer. Folks, the challenge is this, there's a lot of nice people in the world, and in many ways as believers, we're nice people. What is it that's going to distinguish us and make us stand apart? And that is that holiness that Peter writes about here. That holy living, that being that holy priesthood, that abstaining from the sinful desires, because actually we're in Christ and we're different. It's a difference that comes from the inside, and that has a huge impact on our behaviour. So if you're here this morning and you're of that opinion, you know, well, faith is something personal, I just keep it to myself, it's not something I share with others. I have to say I just don't see that in the Bible at all. I don't see any reference at all to being told to be silent. I don't see any reference at all to faith being something so personal that it doesn't impact on others. In fact, I see the complete opposite of that, completely. I see a faith that is actually going to be dynamic and a faith that is going to change the world and change our lives. And that's what we're called to. And actually, we might be blending into that crowd, but the call is actually not just to blend in in the sense of being in the world, but to stand out from that crowd in the sense of being in Christ and of showing Christ in the way that we live our lives. 
So how do we do that? Well, I'm glad to say that Peter gives us some pointers, and we're going to have a look at those this morning. How do we be that person that stands out in the crowd? Well, Peter says this. He says the key to this is submission. You're like, oh no. Peter, really? Submission? He says that we're to subject ourselves. So what does it mean to subject ourselves? Well, to be subject to is to abide by or to live under somebody else's rule. But also, we need to remember what submission meant in the time in which Peter was writing. And then again, with scripture, it's so important that we read it as it is today. We read it through our eyes of 2017. But it's really good to think about what it meant in the context. In the context that Peter was writing, that many of the Christians he was writing to were in prison. They were accused of starting uprisings. They'd been accused of the fire of Rome. And all that stuff with Nero was going on. And most of these letters in the New Testaments were actually written from a place of persecution. And from that place of persecution, from that place of actually being downbeaten by the authorities, then actually Peter writes here that we should submit to whoever is in authority. We should subject ourselves to those who are in authority. As in, we should be people of peace. We should live in peace with those who are over us. And in so doing, demonstrate that holiness that we hold within. And he says that we should do so for the Lord's sake. For the Lord's sake. Hopefully that will move forward. Okay, if you could click it forward for us, Ben, there is. I'm not sure that it's gone forward. That's it. We should do so for the Lord's sake. You know, it's a a strange phrase, really, because for God's sake often becomes used in blasphemies, doesn't it? How many times we are, oh, for God's sake, you know. And yet, actually, I think we should redeem that phrase. You know, for God's sake. Folks, this morning, for God's sake, how are we living? Or in other words, are we living for God's sake or for our own sake? Are we living for promotion of ourselves or are we living for promotion of Jesus and the gospel? When people look at our lives, for God's sake, are they seeing it as different? Or are they seeing actually it's for John's sake or for the Langford family's sake or whatever? Am I living that life? How are you doing on that front? Is there enough to set you apart from those around you? Are you blending into the crowd as the nice person when actually you need to be standing apart as the person who's holy and distinct? You may well know that Dallas is regarded as the most Christian city in the US. Uh, That statistically is that there are a number of evangelical Christians who are most concentrated in the city of Dallas, apparently. How tragic is it then That apparently in statistical terms, there is no difference between Dallas and any other city in the US. In terms of divorce rate, in terms of suicide, and actually in terms of homicide as well. How tragic is it that a place that seems to have a concentration of Christians is nevertheless there's nothing to distinctly set them apart. I wonder what could be said to be true of our circumstances, wherever we are, whatever our Dallas might be, whether it's at work, whether it's at home, whether it's in our local community, whether it's through what we do as light and life, are we set apart? Because Peter calls for the believers to be a people integrated in society and yet extremely different at the same time. Yes, submitting to all of that authority, not being a sort of skewish cult that's on the edge of everything, not being an uprising, but actually a people who live out their faith in a very non-faith arena. Why? 
because in doing so they would silence the ignorant talk of foolish men. What a great line, isn't it? That actually if we live differently, we would silence the talk of ignorant and foolish men. And I just think we face the same situation today in so many ways. You know, people are so unclear what Christians actually are. People are so unclear as to what Christians really stand for and what they really believe. You'll be aware of the Tim Farron situation in recent weeks, the Liberal Liberal Democrat leader. Whatever your politics and whatever you thought to his response and the pressure he was under under the election, but Tim Farron in our country this year, last month, gets to the point where he feels he cannot lead a political party in the UK because of the oppression he felt as someone trying to stand up for his Christian faith in the arena of politics in the UK. Folks, I think that should sadden us. I think it should concern us. I was one of many who wrote a letter to Tim Farron. I don't know, never had any connection with him, but I wrote him a letter. And I just said that I thought particularly his departure speech was particularly sound and actually gave credit to Jesus for what he was doing. And he sent back a letter. I say he sent back. His department sent back a letter. I'm not that naive. But the letter said uh, that he'd been really touched by the number of people who'd written and encouraged him, both Christians and non-Christians. Folks, those who have the strength and the courage to put their head above the water, we ought to stand with them. And folks, if you're in a position this morning where your head is above the water and you feel that you're challenged at work or in whatever environment you're in, then please do come and get prayer and support in that. We want to stand with you this morning as you do that. I feel we face the same situation in so many ways as um, as the scriptures address here. In the sense that people don't understand what we stand for. My daughters at both their previous schools, both of them came home on different occasions and said, oh, my friend said to me today that I've heard your parents are really religious, especially your dad. (laughs) Yeah, I hope so. But I don't hope so. You know, I don't want to be known as religious, do we? We want to be known as people who have a relationship with Jesus and want to bring life transformation. You see, the challenge of Jesus remains. We're to be in the world, but not of it. So how do we live this life of submission that Peter calls us to here? Well, our starting point has to be our relationship with Jesus. This is a a commentary by Edmund Clowney on this passage, and he says this. It is because we belong to Christ that we should behave in a way worthy of his name. Our freedom binds us to our calling. I'll read that again. It is because we belong to Christ that we should behave in a way worthy of his name. Our freedom binds us to our calling. Do you see the almost contrary nature of that? We've been looking earlier this year at those free Methodist freedoms of of being set free, living free and bringing freedom. And now we find that actually our freedom binds us because it binds us to Christ. That new position we're in as that holy people comes because of who Christ is. And that change of position brings us a change of perspective. That change of perspective because now our motivation to live life is because of the change Christ has done in us. That's what gets us up in the morning, to bring that change. And actually, no matter what circumstances we find ourselves in, and how trapped we might feel by our circumstances, we are fundamentally free. We know that because Christ has set us free. If the Son sets you free, you are free indeed. It is a promise. It is a promise from Jesus himself. And we may feel that we're trapped. We may feel that the circumstances of life are holding us down. But Peter reminds us that we're now a holy people, a royal priesthood that we're set apart. And nothing 
can take that away from us. It may feel threatened, but nothing can take that away from us. How are you doing this morning? How are you doing in knowing that you're a holy person? That you're a royal priesthood? That you're set apart? That the Son has set you free? And you're free indeed. He thought submission was an awkward part. Wait till he goes on to talk about slaves. Slaves, in reverent fear of God, submit yourselves to your masters. Well, I did a bit of unpacking of this, and it's worthy, uh, to, it's worthy of a pause here, actually, and try and understand what the term slave meant in the circumstances that Peter was writing into. A number of commentaries suggest that actually the slavery that, Paul, that Peter rather is addressing here is actually closer to domestics. If you like, it's more Downton Abbey than plantation fields, okay? And some commentators, and some of you will relate to this, said that some scholars actually think that it actually extended to medics and teachers who were regarded as slaves in that society. Those of you who work as medics and teachers today probably think it hasn't changed a lot. But that idea of a form of slavery, I guess it's best for us today to look at it in terms of uh, employers and employees today. That call to live a good and godly life in the workplace. To submit to those who are in authority over us. And I reckon for part of that it's a question of integrity. To have integrity. And that may be simple, but it needs to be noticeable. And it can be simple things, just in the language that we use, in the gossip we refuse to be part of. Whatever it means that we're submitting to God's lordship in our lives and not the culture in which we find ourselves. Back in the mid-90s, I worked as a youth worker for churches in the New Forest. And as part of that, worked for a local authority youth club as a volunteer. And on the first night that I arrived, it was a bit of a rough and ready club. Uh, This was in the days when we have a smoking room in the youth club. Can you imagine that these days? But we had a smoking room in this youth club. And I turned up, and uh, this new, fresh-faced youth worker on the scene, and uh, was talking to the young people there, rough and ready they were, and they said to me, uh, you know, oh, what do you do? Who you work? So I said, well, I work for a church. I've just started this job and uh, working as a youth worker from the church. And this kid, this one lad just went, so you don't swear then, do you? So I went, uh, no. <laughs> no. I try not to. Certainly try not to. Uh, but no, I don't swear. So he said, you will by the time you're finished, do you, mate? <laughs> anyway. By God's grace, and there were some situations where, believe me, I could have sworn, uh, by God's grace, at the end of my four years in this job, I came to my leaving party. And this same lad came to me and he said to me, at the end of my leaving party, he said, we didn't, you didn't then, did you? And I went, what do you mean? And he went, you didn't swear, did you? Do you remember that first night you were here, four years ago, I said we'd get you to swear. And you didn't swear, did you? And I went, well, by God's grace alone, but no, I didn't swear. I'd forgotten all about that challenge that he'd set me. But four years on, one lad noticed that in four years I hadn't sworn. Silly illustration on many ways, but significant on others. Something as simple as that can set us apart. What does your language say about who you are? Does it suggest that you're a holy people, that you're a royal priesthood? Because we need to have integrity in what we sing on Sunday is reflected in what we do on Monday and what we say on Monday. Because Peter writes, live such good lives amongst the pagans that they may see your good deeds and glorify God. 
Again, think about that, that they may see your good deeds and glorify God, that people who know nothing of God may see who we are and the way we live it out to the point where they go, well, God, you're good. Amazing that would be. How we long that the Lord would do that in our time. And if you think, oh, John, this is getting pretty heavy this morning. I came to church for a bit of light relief. I'm sorry, it's what scripture says. It calls us into to be people of submission, to be people who are different, to be people of integrity. So would you like some good news? Yes, John. Okay. Here's some good news from Peter as well. Look at the context of what we read. And the context is that it's central to this passage is Jesus' submission. That thought that Jesus has gone ahead of us and set us that model. Jesus' submission to the Father's will was a demonstration of his absolute confidence in his Father. In a moment, we're going to come to communion. We're going to remember what happened on the very night that Jesus was betrayed. The very night that everything that Jesus knew about his father came to such a point where he's prepared to go and sacrifice his all because he knows so confidently who he is and who his father is. How are we doing on that one this morning? Are we so confident that we know who our Father is, our Heavenly Father, that then we're so confident in who we are as well? Peter says, to this you were called. To this you were called, this lifestyle of submission, this lifestyle which points others to God. And why are we called to it? Well, verse 21, he says this, because Christ suffered for you, leaving you an example. Christ suffered for you, leaving you an example. Folks, if we want to follow Christ, let's not kid ourselves. He didn't say, come after me and take up some party streamers and a few balloons. He said, come after me and take up your cross. It's a life of challenge. It's a life of commitment. But it's a life of incredible joy and incredible freedom and incredible release that Jesus brings. It was a path of submission that Jesus took. And especially when he prayed, your will, not mine. And that's what we're called to pray too, isn't it? Your will, not mine. Whatever circumstances we face. This is the upside down kingdom. And Peter gets it. This is Peter, who at the end of the gospel, on that very night that Jesus was betrayed, takes his sword and cuts off the ear of the high priest's servant. And then a few years later, writes to the Christian people, submit to those in authority. Complete transformation. But note the order that Peter gives us here. And that is that it is modelled by Jesus and then followed by us. We need to be a people of submission to God first and human beings second. So those decisions we need to make at work, those decisions we make at home, those decisions we make in the classroom, wherever we find ourselves, we need to submit to God first and human beings second. Because we're called not just to be an example, but actually we're called to be a solution as well. We're called to be that good news, to bring that good news. Because like sheep we've turned astray, Jesus brought us back. And that's what he calls us to do. To go into all the world and make disciples, to bring people back to him again. Do you remember where we started? Live such good lives amongst the pagans that though they accuse you of doing wrong, they may see your good deeds and glorify God. Do you see that little hint there that Peter gives? They may accuse you of doing wrong. 
Just a reminder as we end, people might not like what they see. We might be in the Tim Farron sort of situation where people don't like what we say and the way we seek to try it. Going back to my carpet samples. I'm not going to charge you for them, but I'm going to ask you which samples you need to take away with you this morning. Thankfully, the deposit has been paid. It's a bit better than a carpet right deal. The deposit has been paid completely. Jesus takes everything. But he also calls us to give our everything in response to him as well. And that response comes from that place of love. That response comes from that desire to live differently, not out of our own effort, but out of what Christ has done and what what his spirit strengthens us in to do. Folks, as we come to share communion together, what do we need to lay down before him? What do we need to submit to? Where do we need to learn again that sense of integrity? Where do we need to come as an act of confession this morning and say, Lord, I've messed that up. But my hope is in you. That hope of forgiveness, that hope of restoration. And where do we need to receive again the strength to even suffer for his sake, knowing full well that he is so worthy of it, so worthy of it.